This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace. Visit dreamingwithjeff.com to hear Squarespace's collaboration with actor Jeff Bridges in support of his new album, Sleeping Tapes. Pay any price you like to download the album with all proceeds going to the No Kid Hungry charity. That's dreamingwithjeff.com, Squarespace. Start here, go anywhere. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. (laughs) Is it early? It's a little early. I mean, it's only... No, it's not early. It's normal. Yeah. It's normals. This is a this is right in the thick of normal time. I know. I, I'm, but, I've never been comfortable with this time of day. Yeah, it's very super duper 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 normal. Yeah. I uh, as I was driving into town, I um, passed a lot of trucks that are busy that are bu- busy facilitating commerce, and uh, there's people walking around waving at each other. It's um, it feels really super real out there yeah if you had to identify if you can what is your power time of day like when do you really feel Mm. like you're most on your game is there a consistent time of day when you're like it's john time let's do this i'm guessing like 10 o'clock 10 p.m 10 p.m i I don't know i'm just guessing you seem like when we uh we visited we should mention a little bit later maybe we uh, had a little visit uh Mm -hmm. recently and you you you're ready to go you're 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 drinking coffee at uh eight o'clock you're ready to go (laughs) That's a bad policy, but yeah, I you know I think at at between eight and eleven p.m. Uh, I can handle whatever whatever you throw at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I start to taper off now. Nowadays, I start to taper off around two a.m. I used to taper off around four a.m. And you know, I can't say that I I can't say that ten o'clock in the morning isn't an optimal time. It's not, but I but I feel I feel like I can't say it. No, I understand. I, you know, I had 10, to do. 10 we 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 were recording a little later than usual because I had a call at eight thirty, and I really, I won't say I bluffed or faked, but like I, I'm increasingly not. I don't know. I've gone through stages, and there mm-hmm. there was absolutely a time when I could get up at four or five and be ready to go. But I don't know. Something's happening. I'm trying to sleep more, and eight thirty is like not the power stroke time for me. I I realized this morning. That, you know, I like to sleep for sure, but more than anything, I like to snuggle back in the covers after I should already be awake. Mm-hmm. That is the greatest feeling in the world, and I, and I will just burrow back down in there, not even really trying to go back to sleep, but just trying to avoid the, you know, the shit wave of the day. Mm-hmm. Even if the day is going to be filled with great things, I I'm so right there with you. I just go right back, just right snuggled back down in those covers. I'm, I'm wondering if I have some kind of depressive thing because I really like my bed more than ever, <laughs> and I think that's the kind of thing that depressed people say. I really like my bed. I mean, it's I'm very very comfortable supine. Yeah, well, and and uh, I think you know there are all those people that feel like um, sleep is this, you know, maladaptation because, you know, you do, you lose a third of your day to it every single day of your life. And if you look at your life as a, like a limited amount of time here, I could see where it would be frustrating, where it would be frustrating to feel like one third of it was just burned right. on some baloney. 
But for those of us who feel like we're A, either going to live forever or B, <laughs> are going to be bioengineered by, uh, by UFOs to live forever, it feels like that third of your life that you're spending just sort of powering down um, is absolutely a necessity and, and not just a necessity, but like some of the best times, oh, some of the greatest times. I, I agree, and like I don't know. I've been uh, interested in watching. Um, it seems like, especially in the last, at least that I've been aware of, in the last like ten years, there's been a lot of interest in all these the sleep hacking, right? All these different ways that you could take these little naps, try and split up into two or three sleeps a day. Mm-hmm. There's the people saying now that you know, until very recently, like the 1800s, or second sleep. Yeah, do you know about second sleep? Oh, I'm all over second sleep. Yeah, tell people what that means. I think it's an interesting idea. Well, that that in a time before electricity, right, you would go to bed when, when the when the sun went down. You might go to bed at like seven thirty or eight. Yeah. Go to sleep. You sleep and, and then sometime in the middle of the night you wake up refreshed and you have this uh interregnum in the middle of the night between eleven and three or something, or maybe yeah. twelve twelve and two. I, I think it's like people used to be awake. I've read people saying that like from like 12 to 2 hmm. people would just wake up they would they would talk to people because mm-hmm. everybody all the adults would wake up and uh, you could have your sexual intercourse then mm-hmm. you but, go you out know, and visit with your neighbors you uh, could visit uh, with your neighbors exactly yeah. yeah it's kind of a kind of a hot time kind of a kind of a kind of like a I I I imagine if I were truly living in a second sleep dominated culture, that I would rule the second second sleep era hours. Oh, that would be that's good. I would, I would really be on fire during that time. That's when you start. That's when you start scheduling your calls. That's exactly right. And <laughs> the thing is, you know, that's it's not when you're gonna. You're probably not during your 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 midnight hour. You're probably not going to be roaming around the town. You're probably going to be confined to your neighborhood. But that's when you'd really get to know your your core people. <laughs> um, go out, go yeah, out and visit with Gary. I wouldn't be visiting with Gary. I would be out. I talking, would be talking out, to Patrick. <laughs> I would be out fire hosing Gary. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, like I I routinely uh, throughout my whole life have spent those precisely those hours twelve to two, twelve to to three. Those were my roaming times. That was when I was out screwing around and like you know. Peering over fences and and learning about the world. And you know what's crazy? You think about I think about when I was in college and those college and just after college, which was my peak doing stuff years. Like I was always doing something. I was always going somewhere. I would go. I would go two places in a day. Like it yeah, wasn't you were anything. A busy guy. You had a lot to do. I had a lot to do. <laughs> um, I was the Dread Pirate Roberts. I had things to accomplish. <laughs> but you know, I, I remember uh, first hearing that phrase "disco nap." Um, where somebody would say, oh, we're going out tonight, i got to catch a disco nap. Mm-hmm. And, and in my parlance, that meant you would lay down at uh, 6 or 7 o'clock, sleep for 1 to 3 hours, hopefully awake refreshed, and then go out and uh, tear the whole house down. We're, yeah, well, that's the Spanish model, right? They sleep, do they, like, do they, do they really, everything kind of, does everything really shut down in the afternoon? Is that like a thing? It really, it, it used to be a thing. I think Spain now feels a lot of pressure from the rest of the European community to to uh, to standardize their practices. I bet people are still blogging during those hours. Well, yeah, I'm. I imagine that there's there's still quite a bit of blogging. But when I first went to Spain in the 80s, it 
completely shut down in the afternoon. But that was because everybody partied until four o'clock in the morning. Right. And then also got up at and, and opened their shops in the, in the morning. So then, yeah, the afternoon they just. I but anyway, you, do you feel like these? Do you feel like these hacks? These sleep hacks are good. good I, you know, it's. I'll tell you, man. I, I have. I have gotten. I've got real mixed feelings about it uh, because I, I am very. I don't know. Here's the thing. Maybe we've evolved. Maybe it is, as you say, a maladaptation because. Mm-hmm. You know, but there, even going beyond the sleep stuff, there are so many people trying to find out the truth about how we should be living. Right. right? So on, on the one hand, you've got, if you, did you ever actually read the paleo book? No. Okay. No. Well, you're, you're, you're good. I'm mean, not interested. <laughs> I, I, I counted 10 chapters before they talked about what you should buy at the grocery store because it was so jam packed full i might be misremembering this but i remember it being like okay you sold me i bought the book tell me what to buy but no they had to walk you through all of this science about caves (laughs) and fire (laughs) and light and like they really felt like they've got to set this up not unlike in some ways like the atkins diet two diets in that case really two lifestyles especially paleo paleo is a lifestyle it's it's all i mean it gets into your sleep it gets into exercise it gets into beyond what you eat but like the variety of what you eat and why because that's the way our paleolithic ancestors supposedly uh-huh. lived uh-huh. Uh-huh. setting aside whether or not that's necessarily a good model for somebody in the 21st century uh-huh. but i think people are very interested in that and here's the thing with sleep is is what i was just going to say a minute ago I, I feel like uh you know it's like if you have never been without a certain kind of malady, you might not see it as a malady. You see it as a condition of life, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've if you've never had great vision, you go, okay, I got vision. It's good enough, right? But then right. you get glasses and you're like, holy shit. Like this is a I can see things now. Like I can right. see lines and things. This and is you amazing. Get bitten by a radioactive spider and you can see infrared. That's right. And and like, you can deliver pizzas by, by climbing up a building. And, uh, and, and I guess what I'm getting at is that I, I often wonder, there are so many people I've met who pay lip service to sleep. And I'm a sleep obsessive. But there are so many people who pay lip service, oh, sleep, 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 you've got to get good sleep. And they never do. And I wonder how many of those people have never actually gotten the benefits of getting a decent amount of sleep. And mm-hmm. they're just, they've grown accustomed to being constantly shagged out. So I think having the conversation about whether there are things we can do better is good. I tend to start scooting toward the door when too much science or pseudoscience gets introduced. You know what I mean? Now, now listen, there is nobody in the world who loves constructing a theory based on two books he read and an intro to anthropology class that he took in the 80s more than me. Right? I, I love that shit. I like to walk in the forest and see a rock and say, you know... That rock probably insert bullshit theory here. Igneous. <laughs> and so so on the one hand, like the, the all these movements, the paleo movement, the uh the, the like uh, heritage chicken uh, crowd, the uh <laughs> the, people with chickens in their yard. Yeah, but we got but that not, here. <laughs> not chi- not just chickens. You don't want to just go out and get some dumb chicken from Purdue. You wanna have a chicken that's got like fur. Right, some right. chicken, some some chicken that has that has uh, only a few small pockets uh, still exist on the Shetland Islands, and you can buy one for seven hundred dollars. It's like a punk rock chicken, though. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of fucked up looking, and you're like, yeah, yeah it's my heritage chicken. Whatever. Yeah, 
it can't walk, and it's and it's and its its eggs are orange. A little bit ableist, but, but um, but it's a fantastic. You know, then you see there are places in Portland where you you walk into the yard, uh, and you're like, someone has has uh, has used sorcery to animate mop heads. <laughs> And they're running around this yard, and then you realize, oh shit, those are chickens. They're chickens that look like, uh, uh, that you know, that look like uh, sheepdogs. Anyway, heritage chickens. All these movements, beard oil. I feel like, I feel like, in a way, I support the the premise, which is, which is, you know, this the the idea that humans have been around only so long. We spent. 99% of that time adapting to a certain kind of world. Right. And then in recent memory, we just completely invented a whole new way of living. And now we expect ourselves to be able to live in this new way. I, I support that. Yeah. I'm, I'm I, down, I am actually down with certain aspects of that big time. Yeah. But the, the, but the problem for me is when somebody starts being proscriptive and prescriptive about like actual <laughs> what time to wake up in the morning and what combination of foods to eat because that does as you say that veers into pseudoscience or like we 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 uh we used a, a spectrograph to identify the contents of the of that austrian mummy that they found in a glacier um whose name is Spätzl or something. I forget what, uh, forget what they called him. Uh, Yuri. Uh, no, no. Uh, 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 Avi Spätzl. Anyway, this guy, you know, they, they realized that he, that his stomach contained, you know, five different kinds of millet and some shoe leather. And they're ah, like, shit, we should be eating shoe leather. <laughs> yeah, they, you were just a bunch of trained monkeys. Mm-hmm. Run by the electric system. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, so, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where the line is, Merlin, between you and me advising people to, you know, to think outside their box, right? And and you know, and the point at which somebody offers us a book deal to put all of our uh, ideas into a, into like a, a life system. Oh, nobody at which reads point- books. They should they should uh, give us a YouTube contract. <laughs> Uh, at which point we would be obligated to start talking about this stuff like we really knew well, and, and, and we really had a plan. Yeah, exactly right. And, <laughs> and so here's here's one like I guess meta point though. It's it's if you think about it, like everybody's got their reasons for everything, and it's funny how few things. And part, this could be partly because of our kind of argumentative culture. It could be about identity politics, but uh, it's kind of funny how how few people are content to just shrug and go, "Yeah, you know, it's a thing I do. I like it." I, I don't know if I'll always like it. I'm not really worried about it. Like, it's just the thing I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I, I know that if I uh, get more sleep and I, I try to get 10,000 steps a day and I avoid eating massive amounts of bread and drinking huge beers, you know, I don't need a scientist to tell me that makes me feel a little better. And I don't need a persuasive theory or a paper <laughs> to prove it. Like Wrong. Wrong. Oh, you, you need a goddamn theory. <laughs> I've got the data right here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, but you know, there are some things like you know, one thing we uh, that other program that uh, that you've been on, uh, we've talked about is uh, that I, and, and this is not directed toward you because I know you like to look at eBay in bed, but I do mm. think, for example, the way we expose ourselves to light can actually have a, 
a big impact personally. Like I like the room to be really dark. I try to minimize the amount. This doesn't work very well because of TV, but I try to minimize the amount of bright blue light I get before bedtime because I think that's telling my brain to be awake. That's yeah. one. I, I, you know, there's probably tons of science on that. I just feel like anecdotally for me, you know, like so much stuff in life, I can go, if I do this rather than that, this tends to work out better. I don't have a paper yeah. for it, but that's just the thing I do. And for the most part, most of my, I mean, if it were not for this program where you and I have discussed some, uh, some large quantity of the ins and outs of both of our lives in such a way that it can no, it can no longer be claimed that I, um, that I am a secret from the world. But there are still a lot of things that I just keep quiet about because to even say them out loud is to be is to suggest that you are advancing a theory when in fact you're just you know I like to just say things out loud I like to just say ideas out loud and see see what happens and for me I honestly discovered 7 years ago that I just can't have a TV I can't have one it isn't a, it's not a moral problem I, that I have with other people, it, or I mean, it kind of ends up being one because the TV versus non-TV people are at such great odds with each other, and the TV people are the majority, and they really are defensive. I and feel. if somebody it, it, like it's like religion or anything where like just the fact that you quietly are doing something differently from somebody else for whatever reason is tacitly something to be attacked and fixed by other. Yeah, people. right, right. And whatever and that so, is, and it doesn't. That's the thing is the beauty part. I think what you're saying, if I get it, is like it doesn't matter what that thing is. It could be anything, no matter what. You know what? You know what? You should never fucking do, John Roderick. Never post a f- uh, a screenshot of the homepage on your iPhone because you are going to hear from every single person in the world about like what an idiot you are for every decision that you've made. Why would you put there? Why do you have that app? Why do you have two apps? Why would you put that in a folder? Why wouldn't you put that in a folder? I like to keep it open at the bottom. Derp, derp, derp. I feel like people who follow me enough to look at a picture that I posted on my home screen wouldn't realize that i was completely unreceptive to that kind of talk <laughs> but it wouldn't even try <laughs> but it's so it's, it's something like that, that is it's so innocent and like i i just at the risk of repeating here it feels like you know i mean i i i had this realization a few years ago that when it comes to stuff like social media that it's you like to think it's about you know uh, what you have to say, but the thing that makes it social rather than just media is that it's really about what other people have to say about yeah, you. So right. anything, any utterance becomes grist yeah. for any kind of a weird axe to grind and it immediately becomes this toxic game of telephone where <laughs> like all of a sudden now like you're a counter-revolutionary oh, because you have yeah. two calendar apps. People who haven't read the thing that you wrote, only, but only read the comments that other people had on it, are making assessments about what you said and what you mean and who you are. <laughs> yeah, that, I get that a lot, actually. People, you know, people on Twitter that don't follow me and have obviously not read the thing that other people are yelling at me about, and they just pile on yelling at me, you know. And they and those people are always the amplifiers, right? The ones. That, oh yeah, well, my my friend. Um, Stephen Frank is a is a developer, and he uh, he had a, a pretty popular blog, and he turned on comments, and it got frustrating. So he wrote a little thing that said, "Okay, come in," and then you hit post comment, and you go to this, you go to a page, and it says, "Okay, here's something like this. It's something like here's five sentences. Which two of these sentences appeared in my article?" <laughs> oh, good. You have oh, to correctly nice. answer that. You have to correctly answer that question in order to be able to post a comment. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> 
That's so good. I feel like that should be a test. That should be a, a blanket test on the internet. But I, I, I get in. I, I get in a lot of hot water uh, about our contemporary culture because obviously I love it. Obviously I'm participating in it. I really. But but I have, I have, I have thresholds, or I have I have um, like I'm I'm only willing to go so far and and it does feel sometimes like i am secretly practicing a quaker religion or some other you know or a sect <clears throat> a, a sect of quakerdom and to say even the most mundane thing about how i actually live is to be uh is to be judging and criticizing the way everyone else agrees is the yeah, proper part way part 1 is i'm saying a, a declarative statement here so part <laughs> 1 of that is therefore yeah, everyone right. who isn't doing this the way that i'm doing it is doing it wrong and b <laughs> please feel free at this point to jump in and tell me what i'm doing wrong in life <laughs> right that article i wrote a couple of uh, whenever that was about not being a fan yeah the number of replies i got to that that where the where the gist of the reply was you are an unfun person. You don't know how to have fun. And I feel sorry for you for not being able to have fun. I mean, that, that was a, that was maybe one of the top five, uh, like most favorited or something. Or no, no, not, I mean, no, a top five, uh, thematic. Oh, it came comments. up more than once. Came up, came up a lot of times. I mean, it just I wrote an article one time about like people think that rock musicians are like uh, you know they get laid all the time and are like sex uh, fiends, but in fact, here's what an actual day looks like for a rock musician, and there's not actually there's not really a lot of time to do drugs and and uh, you know and have intercourse. No more than any other busy <sighs> business person. Yeah, right. You're you are. Those, account- those accountants get more pussy than Sinatra. <laughs> Certain accounts, but you know, at, at at two o'clock in the morning, you are schlepping your gear out to a cold van and thinking about where the motel is you're going to stay. And so I wrote this article, and I got a lot of great uh, replies from other rock musicians saying, "Thank you, my God, thank you for saying what we all know, but no one believes." Right? But then I got a ton of uh, th- this was this is back to your uh, your seduction community. Ton of replies from people that are just like, "Well, you just obviously don't know how to close the deal. You don't know how to nick chicks." <laughs> I was like, "I don't." Apparently, that's but a good also, point. Thank you yeah. for your time. <laughs> but, but also, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know how to have fun either because I'm not a fan <laughs> of. Uh, but the, of you know, your articles. Community. You know, it's. I, I, I can see why people disagree with you. I guess I can see why people get mad. But like, it's like I, I at one point. I, I just I would get so frustrated with this this certain kind of attitude, and I know it's not intentional. But when you say like something, "Hey, here's uh here's my ten favorite songs of the year," <laughs> and I'm full of joy, and, yeah. and, and and like most of your comments will begin with "You forgot." <laughs> no, I didn't forget it. I didn't put it on there. It's my list. It's it's just these are ten things I liked. Is that problematic? Yeah. Yeah, you forgot this thing that's the opposite of all those things that you listed. Yeah, and then somebody goes, so, you know, like I, like I grow fond of saying, somebody says something like, you know, why why didn't you use this particular Mac application? Or like, you know, why didn't you become a video blogger? Um, and my standard response is, I don't know, why am I not a potted fern? Like, yeah. how, how 
how do you say why you didn't do something? And then you have a conversation about that. Like, why didn't you put your <laughs> this application in this place on the phone? Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess because I'm a bad person. <laughs> why didn't I go to the Air Force Academy and then uh, become a lieutenant colonel? <laughs> I can That's tell a good you question. that. I can tell you now. I feel like uh, I feel like w- one of the prop not problems, but uh, you know, opportunity uh, stakes. Opportunity stakes. Uh, a big part of the the enthusiasm I have for interacting with the culture comes out of a out of like deep memory of feeling outside and wrong for years and years and years. Just feeling out of step. With my peers. Like there's, like there's never anywhere where you go, oh, I've found my place. For me, no. That's what there, I'm saying. I, like, no matter, even in the most hospitable environments, I've still always felt like an outsider. And I think that that is not typical of people. I feel like most people do feel like they find their place um, and are in their place or, 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 or to, to a greater degree than I am because they play team sports and they all, and they go on the internet and talk about their favorite TV shows with each other. I mean, right. I, I, I go on, I, when I bought my suburban, I was like on the Chevy truck, uh, blogs trying to figure out, uh, about what kind of differential oil I wanted to use. <laughs> it seems so simple. <laughs> and the guys, the guys that are on there, you know, posting 40 times a day, just about, like, uh, what kind of torque wrench you want to use, you realize, like, oh, these people have found their duck. They are here, and and they have a tremendous knowledge about how to rebuild the undercarriage of a of a vintage truck, and they're here all day. Like, they got, they got all the time in the world, right, to talk about this stuff. And that, so when, I, when I'm interacting with the culture... I, I feel, I feel like my success, let's call it success, at navigating, at navigating the handicaps that I had as a, as a young person. There were a lot of times in the course of my life where I was at a crossroads and it was very clear to me that I could, I could go the wrong way and be <clears throat> a permanent drug addict, a dead person, a um a, a worse than that like a bitter guy who had compromised just a few small compromises but that resulted in me doing something that I didn't want to do the rest of my life and then not being able to turn left right, right let alone u turn yeah, right i mean feel- that part of it part of it is like to have to have realized in retrospect that you have rung a bell that can't be unrung Right, that you are that you are now bound by commitments and chains that prohibit you from from or 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 you feel prohibit you from doing anything to change your life except make an incredibly dramatic gesture, right? Like my grandfather made multiple incredibly dramatic gestures to the effect of like going out for a pack of cigarettes and not coming back. Mm-hmm. And every time I open the newspaper and there's a story about somebody that's like, well, it was a murder-suicide. They killed themselves, their four kids, and their wife. And it's just like, well, they obviously didn't see that there was some other thing they could have done. And that's, you know, that's tragic. And obviously, in my case, I wouldn't have resorted to something like that. But there were so many times along the way where I was out of step with the world and the choice eventually was to either say, well, the world is right, and so I have to die a little and 
be part of the world or to say every time as exhausting as this is as as much as much as this feels like punishment i have to get up and do the and follow my instinct against the world and i do and look it at felt it, like it kind of had to be one over the other it had to you know because yeah. to because to do the thing to to make even the initial compromise of like well isn't there a way that i can be myself and be in the world mm-hmm. is to is to just go with the world you know that is to that is to decide that the world is right and that somewhere within the world i can carve out some little cubby for myself and you can't i mean it, if you're if you're made a certain way right you have to just say no in this situation I am going to not presume that I'm right and the world is wrong, but just presume that the world is on a on a on a parallel track, and I have to honor I have to honor my instincts because because I do I did work hard to to train myself I did I did educate myself, and now it's telling me to go this way and I have to honor that. So <clears throat> I do consider that a success because I'm here now. And all of the all of the frustration and the bitterness I have, I still I still can reflect and imagine what it would have been like if at thirty two years old I'd said, "Well, I have to give up playing rock music because it's not working out," or "Well, you know, I should I should marry this girl," or "Well, you know, this is I you know really I'm give, I'm being given an opportunity to train." to be a stockbroker and that's an opportunity that I would be a fool to turn down. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go into this stockbroker training program. It's almost, almost like the world is um, maybe not uh, the world is unintentionally testing you to say like, okay, well <clears throat> we think you're ready for this to tacitly set aside childish things or however you want to think of it. But to, if you can let go of this part of you, then now you get to belong and you get to be part of this system. Yeah. Are you ready yeah. for that? Right. And 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 over and over like the w- the opportunity to join the military when I was young, it's it's really cut and dried at that age. It's like do you have money for college? Do you have do you want to be a success in life or do you want to be some some flop? And that's right. do, very... do you want do you want insurance, a college education and become a homeowner or do you want to just hope this gas station uh attendant job really picks up? Yeah, and for a lot of people that's very seductive. My my stockbroker trainer training program um I was I was working as a clerk in a stock brokerage, a brokerage firm rather called Piper Jaffrey. Wow. And I this was This is the place the, where they kept all the documents on the best floor. Yeah, that's right. And I was, you know, and I was the clerk and and they kept giving me more and more responsibility and pretty soon I was Taking fourteen million dollars worth of bearer bonds down to the bank, and uh, you know, and I had relationships with all these people. The, the, I had relationships with the people at the at the financial desk at the bank, and I had I, I knew some of our clients. I was starting to make my way up in this firm, and I was drinking and on drugs and and uh, and very very uh, very much like living in that world as a kind of. You know, in that in that way, where you're like, I'm just working on my novel, man. You know, I'm here, I'm doing this work, but I'm just watching you people who actually work here, because I'm working on my, I'm working on on an, on another level. 
Yeah, almost like they, they've kind of given up or something. Well, or just, you know, or commit, I was... Or committed. Yeah, I, I was 25 years old, and I had all the I had all the arrogance of a 25-year-old who felt like, yeah, you guys, you know, you work in an office. I come to an office to, get, to gather material. <laughs> you work in an office, and I'm a person. <laughs> But then they started doing the thing where they were like, you would, you're great at this. You would make a great broker. Have you ever considered being a broker? Wow. And I was like, well, I think probably, yes, I had. I think because I have considered doing every job and I imagine because I'm going to live forever that, of course, I would be a stockbroker at some point. Um, and they were like, well, you know, we do have a broker training program. And uh, you kind of have a leg up. You would be able to kind of walk right into this. Wow. And I was like, well, this seems pretty dynamic. Like, this is an exciting turn of events. And so as part of the, as part of the like, uh, enticement, they said, well, there's going to be a little party on uh, Al, Al's yacht this weekend. Al being one of the older established brokers. Uh, do you want to come to the party? I mean, you're, you'll be the youngest guy there. You're a young guy, but, but, uh, but you know, you'll meet, get to meet everybody. They'll see you in a different light. And I was like, I'll come to a party on Al's yacht. Fuck yes, I will. Mm-hmm. And I went down and I had my, you know, and I dressed, uh, dressed for success and I went down there to Al's yacht and, Walked out, you know, walked down the pier and saw the yacht. And I was like, hmm, this is the yacht. It's, you know, it's not really a yacht. It's more of a, it's a big boat. But like, I was kind of <laughs> like. You can eyeball that though. You this can is say, a, is this, is this, or is this not a yacht? Yeah, it's, it's a nice boat. <laughs> it's a nice boat. It's a big boat. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, I feel like calling it a yacht is a little bit. Uh, you shouldn't uh, get to wear one of those Thurston Hell hats probably. You don't get to tell, you don't get to say whether your boat is a yacht or not. I feel. Oh, it's like poetry. Other people have yeah. to call it that. That's right. If somebody else calls it a yacht, that's fine. But if you're like, come on and visit my yacht, it's like, mm, should have said boat. But I get on there and I'm talking to these guys and there's just a lot of, there's a lot of gel in their hair, even the older ones. And I realized that what being a broker is, is it's a job in sales. It involves a lot of cold calling. And it involves telling people that they really, really need this financial instrument. Otherwise, they're not going to be, they're not going to provide for their kids. And you need to say that whether you believe it or not. And I was like, this is not the place for me. And I immediately went over to the bar and I drank 14 gin and tonics oh, and then f- fell asleep on the deck of the boat oh, in no. my suit <laughs> and oh. fell asleep. In, I, I was sitting in a chair, and then I just sp- fell out of the chair. It didn't fall. I feel like I just was more comfortable lying on the deck. Oh, John! But I was lying in the, on the deck in such a. Were you copus? Big, I mean, were you? Were you? Not really. I was pretty out no. of it. <laughs> and uh, and I was lying on the deck in such a way that everyone who was walking around touring the boat had to step over me. <laughs> Mind the intern. <laughs> and I feel like I pretty much uh, intentionally torpedoed my uh, broker training. But it was, it was obviously not for me. But, the, but in that moment, I felt a lot of pressure. At, on my way to the boat and in the first hour I was on the boat, a lot of pressure to not make the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. Because this is a thing that could, you know, that could make make your life you could be a very different guy and you could have all you could have a lot of money and you could be a member of the right clubs and all these things and i you you very seldom 
Although, God, in this life, so many times it feels like you are in a situation where you're like, is this it? Is, do, are these the things I want? I, well, especially I, back then, because I mean, we're. Re- I feel like I'll speak for myself. I feel like I was really brought up to like wait for those moments that would constitute the last ten minutes of the TV movie about me. Like, mm-hmm. when is that thing going to come along where I arrive? Yeah, right. Where you do, th- where suddenly you go whoop, and then the credits roll because you're, you the decision making portion of your life is over, <laughs> and now you are now you just are doing the thing. Like you met the girl, you got married, and you got the good job at her father's company, and then the credits literally roll because nobody cares about the next 50 years of your life. Well, it's obvious everything's going to be fine. It's happily ever after. That's right. Everything's going to be fine, and let's turn our attention to the next young person who is in a decision-making mode. But that 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 choosing and that uh, those choices, I feel like I can continue to have to make all the time, and... um. And you know, I'm in a I'm in a place right now, where I'm being asked by people, "Do you want to do this thing, this interesting thing, where where uh, money might rain down from the sky?" Uh, all it involves is that you change everything that you're doing, and oh, re- really redirect all your energy in this other direction. But if you if you're ready to do that, I can promise you on the other side here that there are. Uh, machine, there are machines in our office that have Skittles, and um, you would have you have you would have one of the top four or five biggest desks. Are you kidding? No, I don't know anything about this. This sounds uh, terrifying. I mean, well, you know, exciting, and, but like, wow! That, that again, at, at your age to have that come along is really wild. It is wild, you know? and particularly wild given that. When I look at uh, the, my end of year statements every year, I'm like, "Well, just eked by again, just by the hair of my chinny chin chin." Um, but but when when I'm when I'm out writing articles or talking on this podcast or like or or prescribing to the world, I feel like what the people I'm talking to. I am I am not writing to dedicated television watchers telling them that they are bad for watching television. I don't have any interest in doing that. I'm not interested in them at all, really. I mean, I feel like they are doing their thing and we are on a parallel track and we are happy friends. Like everything I say and everything I write, I'm I'm trying to reach those people that were or are like me and I'm trying to say to them like there is, you know, there is someone else out here who is doing it, who, who, you know, there is somebody who is not a fan of stuff. So don't feel like not being a fan of stuff makes you an alien. There is somebody who, um, who doesn't like punk rock. So don't think, or not even that doesn't like punk rock music, just doesn't like punk rockers. Mm-hmm. And don't feel like you're a dummy for not liking them because you can still, you know, it's not a question of if you, don't like punks, then you might as well just be a Christian Republican living in Oklahoma. There who's, are, who's tacitly <clears throat> judging uh, the people who identify with that? Yeah, right. Who sucks and is part of the problem? Like it is possible to be to be cool as I am cool and rock and roll as I am rock and roll, and also call bullshit on things on some of the received wisdom of those cultures. Right? Like you, you can you can be even an active, enthusiastic participant in a thing and still be like, but, I, but some of the fundamental premises of this, I just don't, they, they don't reflect my views 
I don't like, I don't like it. Or, or I don't feel it, right? That's the thing. I don't feel it. I can, I intellectually get it, but I don't feel it. Uh, so, so many of the things that are, that, that we, uh, as a, as like American culture talk about as being the things that feel the best, they don't, they don't always feel natural to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm, I'm reaching out over and over and over again to those people because they're the ones that matter to me. The people that, that are trying to make their way in this world, feeling outside, but not so outside that they go join the church of Satan. Just enough outside that every day it feels like, do I compromise today and like just go with the flow? Mm-hmm. Or do I, you know, do I dig my heels in a little bit on this and say, no, you know, I, this little thing, no. And, and to, to feel like I, I, I want to support those people because I feel like the, those may be the ones that have the, that have something extra special that we, ben, that we would benefit from them being a little bolder. Mm-hmm. And, and I never felt when I was coming up that I had very many role models because the, because the role models are always like, you know, like John Doe, right? Here's a role model for you, John Doe. He's a smart guy. He's a handsome guy. He's a good guy. Everybody agrees, a good guy. And or Thurston Moore or somebody. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I do. I think Thurston Moore's a good guy. I think John Doe are good guys. And and those would be they're doing it differently. They're making their own way in the world. And then I would open up the magazine and read their interview with them, and they'd talk about their record collections. And I'd be like, but that's not it for me. Like, I don't want to look at the world through my record collection. And so, you know what I mean? Like, that's the, uh, that's the responsibility I feel. And the problem is I, when, I, when I write an article or when I make a statement in the world, I have to hear back from the 80% of the people who are listening who think I'm yelling at them. Mm-hmm. But I'm not. I'm just like, I'm whispering to, to the people that, are, that I feel like are my kin. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you, you know, you, you have an element of that too, but you're much, you're much better at helping, helping people that you don't feel are like you, right? You're trying to help people who are like you, but also trying to make it, you know, like be, be helpful to people that you can perceive, that you see, but that don't resemble you. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe so. I mean, that, that that particular statement reminds me of something my uh, a girlfriend used to say to me pretty often, which was, you know, I really want to help you, but I'm not sure you can be helped. And uh, <laughs> that always gave me pause and sometimes made me angry. Yes. Um, you can see where that would make you angry. Well, but, you know, she was right. I mean, uh, I guess the, the what what I've realized is that um, – yeah, you know, I, I I made that crack a few weeks ago about how you know if you haven't found anything complicated, you're not near the truth, yeah. you know. And that's and the, the the truth I feel as I try to evolve with that stuff is realizing that you know, uh, I mean on the one on the one hand we're all so much alike, we're so very 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 much alike, but yeah. you know there's also a, a part of all of us that's broken in a different way and that we're ashamed of things in different ways and. The, the, so to, to your point though, I feel like it, it was a real, it was a kind of a, not a crisis, but a real frustration. And it took me a while to get over that I, I felt like I wasn't helping people. 
um, huh. where I was, and eventually that led me to not do my website anymore because I realized that I was, you know, ha- you know, basically uh, paddling out to the life raft and giving people salt water, you know, <laughs> <laughs> drink, drink up, you know, where I felt like the stuff that was making, um, I mean, it's not so different from from alcoholism, I guess, where where or where you're giving somebody something that feels like a palliative that's actually making it worse. And over time, there's a, you know, a pattern that you can see. So anyway, the way I arrived at it today that's not very lucrative is that uh, there are things I will have to say that can help somebody think about something differently. And I think for most smart people, that's a lot. Um, when we realize how much of our problems come from uh, – destructive or uh, not very useful forms of thinking, just learning how to reframe something and looking at it from a different angle can be life-changing. But Mm -hmm. it's not anything that you could have a TV show about without it being stupid (laughs) and being at odds with the basic idea. And the basic idea is that, you know, you're, you're looking at this one part of this kind of wrong what are you laughing about? <laughs> I'm just thinking of reframe it with Merlin Mann on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> I also, you know, I, I love to I love to be disagreeable. You yeah. know, goals are great. No, they're not. Goals suck. Goals are terrible. <laughs> well, goals can be good. You know, I I, I, I like taking those points of view because like it depends, it depends, it depends, it depends. Right. So I don't depends. know. I, I, I don't. Um, but you know, but uh, and, and so then, so then, where does that put me in that instance? You know, it's mm-hmm. not so different from where you are, where it's like you know, so. I, I, there was a time when I would fit most handily into what you might call self-help or productivity. And mm. the thing is, that's a party I do not want to go to. I do not want to hang out with the self-help people. I do not want to hang out with the productivity people because Mm-mm. they're they're in the existential porn business. Like they're in the business of vending you something you're always going to need more of. Right. And it takes you further away from the stuff that you actually need to fucking do, which is sit down and do your thing, whatever that is. And, and that, 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 it's, that it is that general. But, you know, in that instance, I'm with you. I mean, I, I feel, I, I felt very much like, you know, People want to have that one bit idea of what you do, and if it takes too much explaining, you must be a charlatan, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I don't, uh, I don't know. But you know, the other point, just to your to your point about the fan thing, though. I mean, I can't get away from this thing, which is that. Well, part one, um, no matter what you say on the internet, or really anything you say in public, but particularly on the internet, pretty much everybody will find a way to make it about them, and to think that you are uh, talking to them yeah. and kind of. Uh, maybe even attacking them. So if you say something really nice about the world, the kind of thing your sister says on Twitter, you know, quotes from Khalil Gibran or whatever, right. like everybody's going to go, well, that's nice, that's nice. But if you say something like, I really wish people would keep moving and get out of the way, you're, they, they think you're like attacking them yeah. in particular. In that case, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so, this episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace. You know Squarespace as the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a website. But this week, we want to highlight a very cool new project Squarespace has just launched. Believe it or not, Squarespace has partnered with Jeff Bridges. Yes, that Jeff Bridges. To launch a new album by the man that many of us best know and love as The Dude. So go and visit DreamingWithJeff.com. When you get there, you'll land on a gorgeous site, built with Squarespace, of course, where you can find Mr. Bridges' brand new album, Sleeping Tapes. Now, this is an all-new collection of unique and relaxing sounds, guided meditations, and stories designed to lull you to sleep, all put together with a little help from his friends by Jeff himself. Am I wrong? 
You can stream the tracks live off of Sleeping Tapes right there from the site. And if you like what you hear, you can download them all for any price you choose with all of the proceeds going to No Kid Hungry, an organization whose mission is that no child in America should ever go to bed hungry. Again, please check this out and help a great cause by visiting dreamingwithjeff.com. And that album again, Jeff Bridges Sleeping Tapes. Very cool. Now, as for Squarespace, remember, you can get a free trial just even today. Go. No credit card required. Start building your very own website right now. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please make sure to use the offer code SUPERTRAIN for 10% off your first purchase. And that'll show your support for Roderick on the Line. We thank Squarespace very much for their support of Roderick on the Line and for giving this great new album to the world. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the, that was the, 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 the first shock of that of that punk rock article for me was I was writing it for my Seattle for the people that wrote the, read the Seattle Weekly people within within a ten mile radius of where I was standing and I was stunned at how angry it made people in Florida people you like respect and admire came yeah. out publicly against you yeah people we both like are like hey I like that band that guy's mad at John Roderick he's mad but you know the, so you and I just did a show a live show. A live Roderick on the Line show, yeah, in California, and it was very fun, and we had a very good time. But when I took the stage, we walked out on the stage. We, you and I, were standing backstage, and we were like, "How will we know when to go on?" The mu- the music was playing, and then the music went down, and the man from the the sketch fest introduced us and we walked out on stage. Here we are. And, and the last thing you said was like, are you going to go on that side or this side? And I was going to go, I'm going to go on that side. And then we walk out and there's the, there's the room full of people and they're applauding and we are saying hello. And as a rock musician, I adjusted, I got used to a long time ago, the idea that I was going to walk out on a stage and about, and the most I could hope for is that half the audience is on my side. You, you might hope that people stop talking a little bit, right? Yeah, and, and there are there are musicians, and, and, and I know a lot of them, and Jonathan Colton is one, for instance, where he walks out on stage and has for years walked out on stage and and doesn't even think, it's this, uh, it's this thing you were talking about a second ago, he doesn't even think about the possibility that there's someone in the audience that doesn't like him. Because it's a, they're all on a cruise that's named after him, right? <laughs> so, boy, talking about confidence. <laughs> so he doesn't, you know, that that thing of they like, had to write a check with his name in it. <laughs> that you don't have a, uh, you, you don't know how bad your vision is because uh, because you, all you can see is how you see. Yeah. Um. And and the guys in Death Cab for Cutie are like this. The guys in Keen are like this. Like if you are used to playing sold out shows everywhere you go, the presumption is that every person there had to make an a special effort to get into your show. It costs a lot of money. They're all massive fans. But for me, even during the heyday of my band, there was a there was a, a, a palpable sense that our band was one of those bands that hipsters would go to see and stand in the back and be like, okay, long winners, I've heard of you. Mm-hmm. Show me something. And, you know, that was the level of indie rock we were at, where we weren't selling 1,000 tickets in every town. We were selling 500 tickets or 350 tickets, and a certain percentage of that audience was there, was absolutely 
capable of coming away from that show going, well, I didn't, I don't see why people like them so much. I mean, you know, that, that was, that's part of that. You still had some percentage of the audience was there out of curiosity. Yeah. Maybe whereas with Keen, there's a pretty good chance they've heard a Keen song. They've, they've heard a Keen song and they're there because they want, they want to hear the song. And, and the people that are like, uh, you know, I've heard about this band and I go to see five shows a week and I'm going to go check them out. They typically don't go to see Keen or Death Cab for Cutie, but they do go to see bands like The Long Winters. Well, then after the long winter stopped playing and I started doing shows where I was going out as a solo acoustic artist opening for other people, then that dropped that percentage. I guess the percentage of people who were like, who's this guy went way up mm-hmm. and my performance style evolved in the last seven years. I don't remember you flipping the bird quite as much in the long winters. Because in, in the long winters, I wasn't fucking, I wasn't flipping everybody off because I was like, hi, friends, you know, at least a percentage of you. Right. But I, I evolved this performance style uh, where I'm walking out on stage and, and it's like, oh, here, there's an opener at this show. And I'm like, hi, I'm John Roderick. I am a massive person. And to you right now, I am uh, nobody. I'm a, I'm like a weird uh, bearded guy with an acoustic guitar, and I haven't played a moment of music yet. But I cannot walk out here and just be like, "Hi, you guys," and start playing my songs. I'm gonna have to get I'm gonna have to get this room right first. <laughs> and that's time for some framing. <laughs> and that involves telling you not only who I am, but who you are. <laughs> Uh, but and, when how, I, and how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, and how this is going to go. How this is going to go for you if you do like it, and how it's going to go for you if you don't like it. <laughs> you sound like a CIA interrogator. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, this is only going to get worse. Hard or easy, buddy. <laughs> Have you seen the box? Do you want to go in the box? You don't want to go in the box. You don't want to go in the box. But when I walked out on stage with you in San Francisco, it was a, it was a very nice theater and a nice full room of people. And I, and I had, uh, I had that feeling that I wasn't prepared for and I hadn't thought of it in advance, but I walked out and I realized by the applause and by where we were and who we were and where we were standing, I was like, oh, everybody wants to be here right now. I don't have to, I, I don't have, I, I, I don't have to uh, prepare this room. And it was a very comfortable feeling. And then I looked down at the foot of the stage and there was a stack of three-by-five cards that someone, some fan, had... They'd written some uh, inside jokes on. Written some, written some Roderick on the Line-based uh, memes on these three-by-five cards and then had put them on the stage. And so I walked out and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of basking in this moment of like, here's our people. And then I look down and I see these three-by-five cards... And I realized that someone in the audience has uh, done has gone to some work and then put them on the stage in expectation of something. And that expectation presumably was that we would pick up the three by five cards and read them on the stage and go through them and have them. Uh, or I'm not sure what the expectation was. I honestly have no idea. But I looked down at the three by five cards and I said to myself in an instant, you know, someone has placed an expectation on the stage (laughs) and that is not in 
that is not in uh, within the within the bounds of how I'm going to like this is my stage, right? And uh, Merlin's stage, and and uh, I reject your expectations. So I picked up the stack of three by five cards, and you, I hurled. You, you noted someone <laughs> has put some cards on the stage, and then you flung them at the audience. <laughs> I hurled them into the crowd, and which was uh, greeted by a lot of laughter. Well, and the thing is that everyone in the room. And that was the last I thought about it, right? That everybody in the room understood what that uh, transaction just was, right? That someone had, in their enthusiasm for the show, had made a thing. They had put it on the stage and had had crossed a hubris border. And I pushed them back over the hubris border. And everybody agreed that that was the, that that is in fact the introduction to the program that we're doing. And that is, that was in, that was in character of the, of Roderick on the line. And that was just exactly what, what, um, that is the message in a way of the program. Right. But at the end of the night, so I didn't think about those cards again. And at the end of the night, I think some people were, were picking up those cards as souvenirs. Yeah. I saw somebody photographed them, but then I was standing talking to people and shaking hands with people and and a young woman comes by and she's picking up the cards and I'm conscious of she's picking up the cards with a particular energy. It's not an exaggerated one, but there is an energy to the way she's picking up the cards where I realize that she is not an employee of the venue. She is not picking up the cards to clean the space for the next show. She's picking up the cards because it, because she made the cards and I stopped her and was like, Oh, did you make these? And she said, yes. And with a look on her face, that re- revealed to me that maybe everybody in the room thought that that was hilarious, oh, no. except for one person. Oh, no. And I'm not sure what she... Again, I have no idea what was intended. But I had, you know, I'd run with it. And then here was this person who had actually either facilitated this because it seemed like a lot of them were in different handwriting. Maybe she'd gone around and asked everybody in the room beforehand to write something on a three by five card, or maybe she'd done it herself in different handwriting. I don't know because I also had a line of people to talk to, but I said, Hey, no, I would actually like to read those cards. If it, if that is important, I'm sorry that I threw them over the room, but that was just a theatrical moment. It's a bit. And she, you know, didn't say anything. She just kind of, you know, nodded and smiled and gave me the cards. And I did read the cards, and the cards were, you know, a a kind of exhaustive um, collection of of memes and themes that you and I have talked about over the years. I saw uh, Hitler-splaining on there. Hitler-splaining and three, you know, like three-by-five card crossed out and, you know, a lot the, of... Yeah, the top one was, I think, a Merlin-specific joke uh, where I did once have a photo where I had a uh, written index card on an index card. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, what, was, what was your great one? Um, your, your great... There, you, you did some, One like, time I wrote the words Jeff Goldblum on a page and I found that later and I had absolutely no idea why I'd written down <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. My favorite was that picture of you in front of a whiteboard where you had, uh, you'd written some like ASCII joke. Oh yeah. The break, the break tag. Yeah. Break tag. Yeah. The web and, 1.0 conference. Web 1.0 conference. That's right. 
in my uh, garage, and I was the only attendant. And that might be that might be a little early for some of our listeners. Early in the Merlin. That's back when I was writing computer math for the early internet. Yeah, early early culture. But I did feel in that moment that even in our even in our inner circle of people that are a hundred percent like on board and and part of our culture and i see this all the time in the replies we get to the show there is a lot of variation in the expectation and in the you know in like what people are taking away from what we do and in that in that moment vis-a-vis even on your own show that we created you can still feel like an outsider (laughs) yeah right in a way like i felt terrible uh uh, i felt terrible to have because because on on one level somebody worked on it's a sweet it's a i'm gonna say it it's a it's a sweet gesture yeah and uh, and on another level it is you know it is a, a completely in character of the show and of me that you don't put something on my stage particularly not something where the only thing the only thing it's doing there is saying interact with me like i want you to i want your show to incorporate something i made how did how did it end up well she she you know she kind of smiled and bowed a little bit and gave me the cards and Mr. then Roderick and then 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 disappeared in a you know she threw down a smoke bomb and, <laughs> and was gone she did a batman exit and i had to go uh, i had to go to immediately to another show so i i wasn't able to chase her i had to you know uh, greet the people who had who had stayed to say hello uh but you know but it was a it was a thing that that I, uh, when I threw those cards out there, I did not think about it again until I saw the maker of the cards right. and then was like, oh, right. And, 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 and I do respect and honor uh, people making things. And some of the fan art that we've generated makes me as happy as, as See that anything. drawing of you walking a large cat dressed as a pimp? The tall so, cat? So amazing. Jesus. Oh, so amazing. So amazing. Uh, but but that that feeling right that that um and and I think that is a feeling that everybody has right that that no one totally gets them and even your closest people don't they're never going to totally get you mm-hmm. and knowing how to knowing how to know like where your where the borderlands are where you actually dig a trench and make a stand and where you just say like oh this is where there's this isn't a battleground it's just a village it takes a village <laughs> i'm just a villager i feel like i'm writing lyrics to my new record right now i'm <laughs> just a villager <laughs> i'm just a villager it takes, it takes a village no reply at all <coughs> attention generation super train we have an exciting new thought technology for you because right now for the first time ever, Roderick on the Line has shirts. Shirts that you can buy and then wear. These are small batch, single cask, artisanal t-shirts and hoodies featuring our brand new Roderick on the Line logo, lovingly crafted by our pals at Cotton Bureau. To see them for yourself, you can find a link in show notes for this episode or just dial up bit.ly slash supertrain shirt. Now here's the thing. This is a very limited time offer. The last possible second to buy this shirt passes on February 6th, 2015 at 2 p.m. So please act now. Go to bit.ly slash supertrain shirt and pick up this one-of-a-kind item for the very first time 
available to you. John and I thank you in advance for having a torso and excellent taste. Takes a village, makes a village, shake and bake village. Oh, it was a fun show though. I had a blast, and I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it's you know, it's like any of these things. And now we're boy, we're really up our own ass now. But it's um, <laughs> it's really different. I mean, it's funny because like there's this rich tradition of writing and recording music that you put out, and then people listen to. And there's a rich tradition of playing live shows, and they have a distinctly different energy. Unless you're like I remember when Joe Jackson put out that record in like 1986, where everybody had to be really quiet while he was recording because it he wanted to record it live, but he didn't want any audience participation on it at all. It's really weird. Uh, what did I? What, did we just hear something about Stephen Merritt? Where uh, after the first song at his rock concert, uh, he said, "I would, I don't. Uh, your applause hurts my ears." <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad I don't room with that guy. Right? Your applause hurts my ears, man. Okay. I, be- I bet he smells like cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the luckiest guy. Um, but it's true what you say. the The energy. I mean, you and I have a very different when we're on a, on a well, stage. That, that's in front all. Of yeah, exactly. You're getting it. You're getting what I'm saying here. Which is like, uh, if you record with somebody else long enough doing something like this, you know, sure. Obviously, it's a matter of taste whether you are into it or not. But it's it is what it is, and it's what we understand what this is. But like, I've never done anything podcasty that was easy to do live and have it have the same flavor and brio as the, um, as what we're doing right now. Not, that's not necessarily an interesting thing, but you know, and I have to tell you that with other things I've done like that, uh, the best thing we ever did was to stop having it try to have this this precise energy as the recorded show. Right. In the same way that a live show would suck. I mean, barring what Joe Jackson and craft craft work, like don't try and make it sound like the record. That's not what people are there for. And if they are there for that, then they should go listen to the record. Right. Right. You know, and we've talked about that, like, you know, accounting for like the energy in the room and like your ability to respond to somebody booing about the Seahawks or something like that. But yeah. it's, it's hard. I mean, it's not hard. It's fucking coal mining is hard, but it's, uh, but it's, it's weird and uh, scary. Well, and the thing is, like our show, I mean, people will be able to judge for themselves because it is recorded and will be. We'll, we'll have will have been out. It, yeah, when this comes out, um, the uh, the energy when I walk out on a stage, like that's where I am the most comfortable. Right, I've spent my whole professional life standing in front of. A room I, I haven't had anything like actual stage fright in years. I, I, I'm with you. I, I, to yeah. me, for an ADD-addled mind, being stuck on stage in in a position that other people would perceive as pressure, it's like, oh man, I don't have to think. I don't have to think about anything but this right now. Right, and I could so be in the worst I, state of mind, and like I would be totally fine on stage. I mean, you know, given what I do, I mean, I'm not you know Liberace, but like it would be, I would, I am very comfortable in that. Yeah, me too. I I can't imagine a mood that I would be in that wouldn't be improved by somebody pushing me out on stage and saying, go ahead, do you're responsible for 30 minutes. I'd be like, well, I was just about, I don't have to think about cancer for a while. I was just about to hang myself on my belt from a doorknob, but (laughs) now stage time, Mr. Roderick, I'm going to do 30 (laughs) minutes on that. And it's going to be so fun. Did you notice how much the backstage area, when you're looking through the door, did you notice how much it looked like a gallows? Oh, you walk up those steps, and there's like those yeah, windy steps. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it really looked like a gallows. Uh, when I was in uh, when I was in Djibouti recently, hmm. I um, saw your trip to Africa. 
Oh uh, yeah, that's right. It's a it's a place in Africa. Djibouti is a place in Africa. That's fun to say. We were uh, at a certain point. We had um, we'd 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 had a, a late night smoking cigars uh, with the uh, master chiefs and the chief master chief. The command master, master chiefs are very very the highest level enlisted people, right? Right. Okay. In the navy, they're, they're like they're professionals. They're career professionals who just aren't officers. Yeah, and the chief. I'm sorry, the command master chief is the highest ranking chief. And the the command master chief of this base was a very uh, capable and very clearly in command person. And he invited us to his like private lair where we sat around smoking what could only be described as illegal cigars. Mm. Oh, and so lucky. having a good time just talking to the chiefs. They're different, they're, they're different those cigars. Yeah, well, and these guys were different. And at one point, oh, I think I, oh. I think I mentioned uh, on some other podcast I I recently did um, <laughs> that one of the master chiefs was like when I said uh, I was going around like, "What do you do?" You know, and he's like, "Well, I'm in charge of the CBs." I'm like, "What do you do?" Well, I'm in charge of the. And I get to a guy and he's like, "I'm a parachute packer," and I said, "You are a like master chief, and you're telling me you're a parachute packer for the Navy." Who does the what Navy guys ever go under a parachute? And he just gave me this wink, and I was like, "Oh, I see, I see who you are." So it was these guys. Well, and well, I, well, what did I miss there? Is he an operative? He's the he was the seal. He was the he was the seal master chief. Oh, it's like when I tell people I'm a ceramicist. I get it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he was saying. I pack parachutes, and if you're in the if you're in the, the then military, I sh- then I shoot the shit out of people. <laughs> yeah, if you're in the military and you think like, who is in the navy? Well, a lot of people that swab oh, the decks. The only guys that come out of airplanes in under parachutes are like, you know, they don't have a and they, they don't they, have an air. Are they trained for like everything? Like they, they are they are meant to be like even beyond marines god bless them like you're they're meant to be like they could go into any situation and just deal with it right yeah well i'm not gonna jack off the seals right now because i feel like the seals are getting enough credit in our culture but yeah okay, the, sure, the, sure, the, sure. the seals are the seals Do, have, a, have nice, a, good, a good challenge coin <laughs> they have a good challenge coin and they have a lot of uh they have a lot of uh skills uh they have the skills to pay the bills okay fair enough. but anyway so i'm talking to the command master chief and I said, why is this base closed to, why, I mean, why is it on lockdown? And he rolled his eyes and said, well, nine months ago, somebody blew themselves up in a club downtown in Djibouti. And so now nobody here is allowed liberty to go into the town. And I said, I really feel like that is antithetical to the, to the whole idea of having a military base in a foreign country. Like the young guys that are in the Navy need to go into the town. And the people in the town need to have the young guys in the Navy come in. Like, that's, that is the symbiosis of being deployed overseas. And to have a base here where the, the sailors can't leave the base mm-hmm. is just the wrong mentality. And he said, I agree 100%, but I am being, you know, I'm, I am, uh, my hands are tied because the order came down from, um, you know, U.S. AFRICOM or something. And I was like, well, that's a bummer because I really want to go see Djibouti. And he chewed on his cigar for 15 minutes while we talked about other things. And then he said, you know what? I'm going to make it so that you can go into Djibouti. And the next day, he 
you know, some captain or not captain, some lieutenant, Navy lieutenant shows up in a SUV and we all went out. Uh, David Reese and Jonathan Colton and I and somebody, some other person that I don't know who they were, we all went out through the seven layers of hardened security gates and drove, spent an afternoon driving around Djibouti town. But the most telling moment was as we were leaving the base, it's kind of, you know, gravelly, scorched earth sort of around the base. So we're leaving the base. He points over to the side and very matter-of-factly says, they're the old gallows from when the French ran this place. Wow. And it was like, it was like Calvary Mount. You know, there was, a, there was literally a hill. And was that for their own guys? No. Literally a hill and then a giant gallows that where they hung whoever it was that they felt needed hanging. Mm-hmm. And, and it was built in such a way that you could not escape seeing it from sort of miles around. Uh-huh. And it was a real, like, I mean, it was real colonial. Uh, it was, it was like, an emblem of colonial authority and Un- unapologetic, unapologetic colonialism. Absolutely, just like here is the here. This is not a hearts and minds type situation we're running here. Yeah, this is the end of the road, right? This is uh, this is the Dienbian foo of Djibouti, and uh, and boy, I, I I mean, walking around or going around Djibouti town it was interesting, and I was you know uh, it was a fun experience, but I've been chewing on that gallows ever since and just like that's some heavy shit that we don't it's been a long time since there's been a visible gallows in the united states and i don't think i think you'd be hard pressed to find one still in a public square maybe in a theater and the thing is they're not yet maybe in a theater in san francisco in an italian social club oh that's so scary it was scary. I mean, even and, if it's, you know, not being used, it's, uh, wonder why they haven't taken it down. That's the thing that I've been chewing on. Like, Just in terms you, of messaging, that's It's so easy to blow it up. Yeah. But or, you know, turn it into a gift shop or something. But, like, to have uh, that thing there seems, uh, I don't know. That seems a little creepy. It does. It does. It does. And it does to me still. But, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of countries where, uh, you know, capital punishment is still practiced in the in public. They did, didn't they? Do the French did public executions until into the 20th century, right? Yeah. When they had a, they, I mean, I've seen photos of a very modern looking guillotine. Well, you know, it's uh, the guillotine is very efficient and very sanitary. So, in that sense, I Talk mean, if, the you, German. If, you're th- if you're thinking about sanitary, sure, that's what you want. LNZ, because everything goes in the basket. <laughs> Right? Although a basket is a terrible thing to collect blood in. <laughs> oh, God. Isn't that weird with all of that? Te- let's end on a happy note. Um, isn't it strange with all of the technology we have, we're moving backwards in terms of cleanly killing people? Is, doesn't it seem desperately – well, first of all, I, I don't know about you. I'm not a giant fan of the death penalty. Mm. Uh, but, man, if you're going to do it, Jesus Christ, these guys could fuck up a steel trap. I mean, well, did you hear about the, the the one dude and the like? How long it took him and the condition? It's like this I is mean, the thing they they keep trying to make it humane and and 
and then they you, you realize that it isn't humane <laughs> to kill people, uh, no matter how you think of to do it. Well, and, and like, and, but as you have stated, the the most monstrous seeming methods from you know uh, centuries ago are a lot cleaner than having a guy dressed up like a doctor go in and poke you. I guess a doctor probably go in and poke you with poison. Like that's actually not as reliable. No, it's terrible, and because everybody is different, and you know, you can't really gas somebody either reliably. Well, like go go the, meet anybody who's an anesthesiologist. I mean, that's the toughest gig in that room. Yeah, is it, it's. A t- I'm fascinated by anesthesiology. It's it is so difficult to get right, and you hear you still hear with seasoned people. You still hear these stories of people who were knocked out enough to not be able to say anything, right? But, but not, could not, still feel. Yeah. Or the people that just die on the operating table because they're having a mole removed. <laughs> and this is why you're the emissary. They're going to come and fix those moles. I feel like, I feel like, uh, I feel like we just need to get a sort of soylent green maker. Mm-hmm. If we're mm-hmm. going to have capital punishment, it needs to be handled in a central location. Let's make it work presu- for us. Presumably somewhere in, uh, I would say, Kansas. Let's say Kansas. Because Kansas is the center of the country. And they also, um, they've, they have decided how they're going to be there. So let's just call it Kansas. Maybe, I mean, Texas obviously has. No, I like Kansas. Kansas. So they'll put it in Kansas. It'll be a Soylent Green factory. We'll take all the people that we have decided that we're going to legally kill mm-hmm. and we'll just put them in a hopper. And then down through the grinder, there's no amount of, I mean, it's going to be quick, mm-hmm. but there's no amount of like, oh, we didn't get it right the first time. We have to go back. Yeah. Right, they're just going to be, and then we can use that as fish food or fertilizer or or squeezies for kids, (laughs) Um, whatever you want to use it for. Oh God! But it took us. I mean, just using a matrix philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. It took us a long time to grow that. Yes, that that bad person. Yeah, we've invested. We've invested a lot of time and energy in public schools and so forth. They should, should at least be a snack bar for kids. We should at least get something out of it, right? Oh, yeah. Some kind of, like, uh, slurry that can be used for a variety of purposes. Bridge too far, John. <laughs> you can use it to paint your barn or whatever. Oh, okay. I don't know. Good show. It was fun. Yeah, nice, it, nice people. Uh, it, did, it was good. We we never really used the bell. No, uh, just a little bit, a little bit. It was it was a little bit. You know, we're trying to work it in. But uh, how was your overall experience of Sketchfest? You had the uh, you had the nerd show uh, with the nerd guys. You mm-hmm. had uh, uh, Roderick on the line, and then you did something. Did you did you get to meet John Benjamin? Is that right? John Benjamin and I, uh, he, he hosted the show that I was the musical guest. Wow. And he, and he and I had a very, very nice time together. It, uh, it was revealed by H. John Benjamin that he is a long-time Long Winters fan. Wow. I also heard he listens to a friend of mine's podcast. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So He's he, a media consumer, that guy. Media consumer. And also, just from the moment you meet him, just in his face and in his eyes, you realize that he is one of the good ones. Uh, just a good dude. And his his comedy, his sense of humor really comports with my own. Like, <laughs> he, he walks out on stage and he's just like, I mean, here I am. And here are the things I'm going to say. You make any cracks about Bob's Burgers to him? <laughs> no. Don't think I, I didn't hear that. I learned my, I learned my lesson. 
<laughs> your throwaway lines with people watching junk TV, sitting around watching Bob's Burgers. <laughs> yeah, I did. I took a shot at Bob's Burgers, but then the following day I was on a show with two of the guys from Bob's Burgers, or three of them. I don't know how many of them. Eugene was there. Oh, but it was, right. Eugene Merman, yeah. But all of the shows at Sketchfest this year were great. <laughs> all I had the great a great shows. I had a wonderful time. I met a lot of amazing people. And, uh, and you know, the, the, uh, my problem in the past with Sketchfest was always that I was left standing on the, the corner at some point by a driver who had never been to San Francisco before. Mm. And this time it did, it never happened. It was completely well organized. It was perfect the entire time. There were a couple of, a couple of little problems. They didn't put me in the hotel I wanted, which made me mad. And I, and I voiced my anger to everybody and they all tut tutted and told me that they were really sorry. Mm. And I was not mollified. Mm-mm. But I did just go with the flow because I'm learning to go with the flow. Is that right? Not really. No. And then at the very end, I was uh, standing in front of my hotel waiting for my ride to the airport. And the guy is texting me, on my way, I'll be there in five. And I was like, okay, we're getting down to the wire. I got to get to the airport. And, you know, it's going to take a little while to get there, as you know. And then uh, he texts me and he's like, all right, I'm pulling up out front. And I'm standing there with my guitar case in front of the hotel, looking up and down the completely abandoned street. Oh, no. Street. Did he go to the hotel you wanted? He went to the hotel that I wanted to be at, oh, the hotel no. I should have been at. And he's like, I'm in front of the hotel. I don't know where you're at, man. I'm right here at the hotel. Idiot. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, you bastard. Uh. And, all of, and then I was just like, all of you are bastards. And so I grabbed the first cab I saw. Which, in the, in the culture of San Francisco, was the wrong move because it infuriated all the other cabs that were parked on the side of what I had, what I had seen only a moment before to be an empty street. It wasn't an empty street. There were like five cabs. Oh, you, you had a line jumper, huh? And, I, and some guy zips up, and I was like, you know, taxi, and he had jumped the, the cab the line. line. Yeah. And then all these cabs started honking their horns, and one screeched up and tried to block us, and they were yelling at each other. And I was like, listen, you want mad? You want to see mad? Mm-hmm. I'm mad. Mm. You guys might be you guys might be cabby mad, but I'm a higher level of mad <laughs> than, you're, than cabby mad. Those and guys are all, getting their clock cleaned right now. It's the cabs. Re- oh, because of Uber. Oh yeah, it's it's bad. The Uber drivers make up, I think, on average, ten dollars an hour more. Oh, and uh, just the number of people who move from being cab drivers to Uber is just—it's dramatic. I mean, I, and I've got that. It's called Curb. I've got that app for getting a cab. You know, that's yeah. supposed to be their answer to Uber. I've tried it three times, and each time I've waited ten minutes, and they've never gotten a cab. Whereas with Uber. I, I hate them, but they're here in three minutes. <laughs> yeah, they're there in seconds, right? Yes. And uh, and most of the time, I was in San Francisco and needed a ride. People were calling Ubers, and they were there in three minutes. Yep. And this cab that I did take to the airport, at some point, maybe as a weight saving measure, maybe uh, for some other uh, reason that I can't explain, it seems that they took out the entire rear suspension and replaced it <laughs> with a with a railroad tie. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So the whole way to the airport, I was like. <laughs> 
this car is not safe to drive. And the guy was like, what? It's fine. I, I've noticed that there, there's basically there's two kinds of people driving things in San Francisco generally. There's people who drive for Uber and Lyft, and there's cab drivers who fucking hate Uber and Lyft and talk about it the entire time. Yeah, they're, he, they're advocating for it now. I got I got a ride home a couple of weeks ago, and uh, and uh, the entire ride home, this guy went off. He's like an activist, an anti Uber activist, and just went off. And you know, and I'm I'm doing the thing where I'm kind of like making a motion with the earphones. I'm like, just let me know if you need anything, you know, like because I'm not a talk to the cab driver guy. And uh, but like there's an accident in the road. And he's like, oh, I bet that was the whole time. He's got his arm on the seat, and he keeps turning back to look at me. To make sure I'm getting all of this, he goes, yeah. "Oh, accident! I bet that's an Uber. We like to take, <laughs> we like to take photos of them and post them." I'm like, wow, man, <laughs> you're really driven. <laughs> so mad, so mad. Yeah, no, I, uh, I had a great time in San Francisco again. I did not make the mistake of buying anything while I was there because oh, you didn't, did, you, did you ever go back and demand satisfaction from the suit people? No, I, and I actually thought about it as I was walking uh, in that neighborhood, and I thought about how true it is, I mean, because I'm not alone in this, how true it is that not only did that guy make, you know, he, it wasn't that big of a ripoff, but he, you know, he made a He's couple of He's counting on the bucks. fact that you're from out of town. Yeah. He made you, a, you, he like, made a it's like you send it at, when we worked at McDonald's. If we had to choose where the good food or the crappy food went, the good food always went to the counter. The crappy food always went to the drive-through because they're not going to come back. Interesting. I'm just saying, works for suits too. I did not know that the McDonald's employees had a good food, crappy food dialectic happening. <laughs> but I haven't eaten at a McDonald's in a decade. Oh. But uh, but this uh, this was a situation where this guy made a couple hundred bucks off of me, and uh, and my instinct would have been having if i'd had a successful experience at that place that that the way that i the way that i uh, practice loyalty is that i would have bought something in his store every time i went to san francisco mm-hmm. for the next 25 years and the well, couple the, hundred the way bucks you phrased it i'm sorry i interrupt you the, the no, way you phrased it that it sounded like that's kind of what you were looking for you that's wanted exactly like what, what people used to have which was a suit maker a tailor who could right. give, give you bespoke clothes and you go oh hello jim senior hello jim junior suit right. me up you're back in town. We missed you. You know, my, all the things that my dad had from that store that were that were made for him by this guy's dad. Um, you know, I, 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 it, it had created a fantasy in my head that I was going to have a San Francisco haberdasher, mm-hmm. and uh, for a couple hundred bucks, this guy, uh, this guy, lost what will what will end up being tens of thousands of dollars in patronage and that feels like punishment enough also the other thing is i have a podcast where i refer to him periodically and my <laughs> presumption is that if you live in san francisco mm. that you you will not patronize cable car clothiers out of loyalty <laughs> to roderick on the lawn you're not bitter not at all. No, this is how people is are how constantly, works. constantly telling me how capitalism works. I, I it, it was <laughs> always it was, back in your parachute. It was so funny. I was uh, based on the the Dan Benjamin uh, program that I've only recently become aware is that, of. Is that completed, or is that still? Where, what's that? Where is the status with that? Which one? Is it still recording, or are you you guys done now? <laughs> uh, it, we're skyping now. He, I, I lay in bed with my iPad as I'm going to sleep, and Dan's on the other side, and we're just looking at each other. And like, <laughs> you, you hang up first. You hang up you first. Hang up first. <laughs> right. But uh, but as a result of that program, where I said, you know, every time I uh, like I laugh a bitter laugh every time the New York Times 
uh, f- uh, like paywalls me because as a musician, I always find it uh, I always find it really charming when people tell me that their content is worth money because I've spent the last ten years being told that my content is, isn't worth money or it's worth a fraction of a fraction of a cent and. Uh, I said something like that on Dan's program, and I got a tweet from the managing editor of the New York Times. What? Who listens? That person listens to Back to Work. Listens to Back to Work, and then he says in his tweet, "I am a big Long Winters fan and have been since before the podcast era, and I bought all your records." Sick burn. We're in an economy with one another, and this is what it this is what it takes. Uh, you, you know, you pay us, we pay you. And I said, well, I replied back and said, yes, but, um, you paid, you bought my records, be- you bought my records because you chose to, right? You had the option of buying them and you chose to do that beca- for whatever reason. But there is also, uh, and the, and the, the predominant, way of acquiring my records now is to choose to just do the easiest thing, which is not actually not to buy them. Mm-hmm. The easiest and the, the way that the culture is, the way that this economy you're describing works now is that my content in particular, above all other contents, is, is uh, supposed free. And you know, the equivalent would be that, some, that Spotify come along and say, we're going to publish all the newspaper content in the world, and then we're gonna we're gonna pay the various newspaper writers. We're gonna pay the various writers based on how many people read their articles, based on math that we devise for ourselves. <laughs> right. You know, so every time somebody reads no, no, one, no no, uh, no negotiations, no negotiation possible. Anytime somebody uh, a writer reads that New York Times article for free on Spotify, we're gonna give you point zero 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 one cent. And he, to this guy's credit, this New York Times guy, wrote me back and said, looking in my iTunes at what I have actually bought, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. Oh, versus what he downloaded for free? Yeah, or what he what he thought he owned, but in fact was listening to on Spotify or whatever. However it was that he kind of reflected on on the fact Oh, and then, I see. Oh, that's, was like, that's, yeah, very much to his credit. Yeah, very much to his credit. And then even more to his credit, then he said, here's a, here's a hack. Um, all the New York Times content that, is, that we promote via social media is paywall free. <laughs> you can also go like, in via Google News. He'll usually let you in. Oh, Google News. That, thank you, Merlin. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's about technology. Look at all these. Now I'm, now I feel like I am, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, what is what was that what privileged was that? <laughs> no no i already felt that no what was that what was that dumb uh, program that the guy from facebook that liked to have disco parties with underage girls uh, invented to listen to music for oh, free like uh, like the uh, the N- napster not friendster napster that's right yeah now i feel like i have the napster uh for the media for the news talk about privilege i got a, i got a nice email this morning from somebody Actually, I shouldn't say. A public Uh radio station that I listen to. Uh uh, (laughs) That you listen to on the internet or on the airwaves? I listen to on the airwaves, and he sent Mm -hmm. me the pledge pledge, uh, friendly no pledge link. He sent me the feed where you don't have to listen to pledge stuff. Oh, what? Yeah, talk there about is privilege. One? I, I feel like I've arrived. Yeah, once you once you pledge, they they give you the keys. Oh. I haven't pledged yet, but he he fronted me. 
by uh, on the strength, as they say. Talk about privilege. Yeah. What could be whiter and more privileged than getting a link <laughs> to listen to NPR without the pledge? I'm Ash officially the whitest free. person on the planet. <laughs> 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 and this is All Things Considered. <laughs>